Today on Tales of the Road Warriors, we're going to talk to Ken Queter. But before we do, I just want to put the word out that uh, Ken will be appearing at the Bridgeport Rib House in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. It's between Norristown and King of Prussia. So it's a, it's a brunch, 12 o'clock on Sunday, March 31st. So if you can make it, head on out there and catch Ken in the act. Now, for a little bit about today's Tales of the Road Warriors. During the late 70s, while I was performing as a singing waiter in Los Angeles and cutting my own teeth as a performer, I was missing a a phenomenon back in my own hometown of Philadelphia, a guy by the name of Ken Queter. While I was bartending, busing, waiting, and singing Beatles songs tableside to my customers, Ken Queter and the Secret Kids was back in Philly taking the city by storm on every stage in town. Now here we are in 2019 and Ken Queter, like me, is still actively gigging all over the tri-state area. He sometimes performs solo, sometimes accompanied by a friend or two, and occasionally with his full band, the Men from Wawa. It wasn't until the past year or so that I became aware of Ken Queter, but through a mutual friend, Jim Fogarty, who occasionally accompanies Ken, I began seeing his name in Facebook posts and reading about him online. Eventually, I checked out some of the YouTube videos posted by his friends and fans, and I knew I had to talk to this guy. This conversation barely scratches the surface of the nearly mythological figure that is Queter. There are much more in-depth interviews, music videos, and even a documentary or two you could find floating around cyberspace. Just be prepared to be awestruck if you go down that rabbit hole. In this episode of Tales of the Road Warriors, Queter delivers some Queter history, and I did learn a thing or two about the East Coast during the years I spent on the West Coast, and we share stories about playing different types of gigs. Of course, I was a much smaller fish in a much larger pond, so I can't really compare notes on the same level, but I can tell you this, we had a great talk, and hopefully we'll do it again because, as I said, we barely scratched the surface. Even now, Queter 2.0 is making Queter history. So let's get to it. Hey, Hal, how's it going, man? What's going on? I was going to ask you the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, pretty much uh, the usual um, Queter Circus Act. I mean, uh, gigging quite a few nights a week and always working to make sure that I got uh, work in the future, which requires, you know, relentless... Uh, phone calls and uh, visiting of establishments and uh, lots of text and emails and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Well, see, it seems like you have infinitely more energy than I do. Well, I mean, I have an excuse these days, but I don't know if I ever had the amount of energy you do. I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty much, uh, um, I, I, maybe I appear to have the energy. I mean, well, I'm, well, I'm you, were tell, you were telling me earlier, you know, you're up at 7.30 and you're on the phone and you're making calls. And it just seems to me that, you know, word of mouth, people would just be calling you. You, you wouldn't even have to try well, we that would, hard anymore. We, we, yeah, we would, we would hope that was the case. But at, in, my, in my situation, that's not the case. So, I mean, of course, on occasion, I'll get a phone call or something. But uh, generally, if I don't stay in the mix, actively in the mix, um, if I'm not constantly hunting for work, it will eventually dry up to maybe one gig a week, if that, you know, and, or a couple gigs a month. And that will happen. I mean, 
Um, well, you're I, making me feel but, a whole lot better because <laughs> I yeah, try so I mean, hard. It doesn't seem like I I get much more action than you're getting. So it's hard. I mean, it's like, I mean, and uh, this guy's believe me, this guy's um, you know, much better than me. I, I mean, as musicians, and they're not working hardly at all. But they don't want to deal with the nuts and bolts of stopping into an establishment and uh, trying to finesse a gig it's not easy and it's emotional because sometimes you know you don't get a lot of times you don't get the gig and um but you have to be relentless you have to be irrational you have to be determined and you got to you know i have a lot of faith in myself about what i can do but it's hard it's not easy and uh, but like i said i know a lot of guys much better than me and i understand their point of view they they're not going to do that. They're not gonna, when we say you know. better than you, though, that, that's subjective because it, it doesn't always come down to, like, whether they're technically better or, I, I mean, you have this charisma that a lot of people could never match. You might not yeah, have the sweetest that, voice or the, yeah, you yeah. Know, the prettiest face, but you have a charisma in addition to just really good musical chops and you know a million songs without, you know, having the lyrics in front of you. And yeah, but the charisma thing, you picked up on the charisma thing. Most club owners, most managers, they don't, charisma is something they don't, they don't even know it. I mean, like, in other words, you picked up because you, you have an artistic streak in you because you're a performer and you are born that way. But most, yeah, I can tell you stories when I lived in Copenhagen and I would do 30 days at one club. And at the end, they would evaluate you. And I would say to the bartenders and the waiters and waitresses who happen to work that entire time, they would be questioned by the booking agent of the Copenhagen club. And I'd say, what did you think of my, uh, my stay here on Thursday nights? And I go, I don't know. We never really listened to it. Like, like most, like, you know, it's, that is not, I used to think that was a, a rare thing, but they had no idea whether I was charismatic or if I could play guitar. And it was all just the same hamburger. But when I say someone's better than me, I'm talking from artistic point of view, but there's great piano players out there and great guitar players. They may not have that goofy charisma I have, but um, but they're better. Um, and In other ways. Some guys you are... know the sucky thing about that, what you're saying, too, is we're in a, an ego-driven career. And when somebody doesn't recognize that we're, we have that little extra something that nobody else has, you, you say to yourself, like, why don't they see it? Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why don't they see it? Um, it, because they're too busy worrying about other things that are, are higher on the priority list. Like, if, do you mean like club owners, or do you think like in, in the uh, yeah, it must, yeah, the club owners, the, the the bookers, or the managers, they, they have so many things going on. They don't notice us, and, and they got to make sure they're not running out of plastic cups, dude. You know, yeah. plastic trash bags. I mean, that shit's higher, <laughs> way yeah. up on the food chain there, and we're just merely an incidental thing. I'm not putting us down, but I'm saying that uh, if they didn't have trash bags for two days, um, that would be a big problem. If the musicians can't swap for two days, that wouldn't be a problem anywhere near lacking trash bags or soap and things like that. You know, I'm just being, it sounds weird, the, but... The restaurant manager of a place I worked once just stopped dead in her trash. It was a real crazy, busy night, and I guess everybody was just had problems that night. And she just stopped dead in her tracks, and she just looked at me. She goes, "How? There's no such thing as an emergency." What did that mean? I don't know uh, what that means. Well, because everybody was coming up to her with 
their little emergencies and 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 she was like the troubleshooter that night she was the manager okay, yeah. on duty and just everything turned out to be like so much less of an issue than the person running up to them running up to her with this with I these like problems that. I like that because there's no such like thing as an statement. emergency i like that statement that's a good statement it's stuck in my but head yeah, man, yeah. But, yeah but i'm saying you know you, you know I'm, I'm sure you're you're hunting for gigs, and uh, sometimes you'll see people playing gigs that are uh, who just started playing guitar six months ago, and they got a gig. You go in there, you don't get the gig. It's like, wow, that's crazy. You know, I've seen that many times in my life. Where you know somebody who can't sing gets a gig that I can't get. You know, uh, it, so that is pretty mind-boggling. So, but that what that does to me is it it just makes you keep going to the next club and the next club and the next club. But that is exhausting to keep going to these clubs or whatever, you know? Yeah. Ideally you want somebody to just say, can you play here, you know, every Thursday night for two or three years? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that would be nice. I mean, I, I have it happening a little bit now, but then, then those that vertical type of booking will happen. And then before you know it, there's a DJ coming in, you know? Yeah. Um, I was doing really well down on South Street at a, at a place years ago. And then I got replaced by, um, what the fuck was that thing called? Uh, some kind of a rock guitar or something. The guitar, it was a plastic guitar. Or like uh, like Guitar Hero or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I got replaced by Guitar Hero. Right? I got replaced by Guitar Hero because they didn't have to pay the, yeah, they didn't have to pay the video game and they made money on it. You know, uh, but uh, yeah, I could tell you a million stories. But I mean, I'm just going. I'm like salmon you know, going up against the stream and until I can't do it anymore, I'm just going to keep doing it, you know, and, uh, but, uh, we I mean, we are I'm salmon sure. against the stream. Musical salmon. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it, the odds are long, but I got to get to the, to the nest. Get did to you, where I got to uh, go. Did you happen to notice, was it maybe a year ago when uh, Les Paul died that he had been playing a, a club in New York? up until the day he died every Friday night. I I knew about that. Yes. But I, I never saw him. I knew that. Yeah. No, I never saw him either, but I said to myself, I want to be that guy. I, I, I want to play till the day I die. I want to have a gig somewhere. Even if it's just once a week, I want to go out at yeah. 94 in the middle of a chord. Like I can't form this chord. Anymore. Yeah. I, My hands cramping. I, uh, uh. I agree. Because <laughs> yeah, he, he, he was there like at least 40 years. I think some ridiculous amount of time yeah. he was there but there was a guy in philly named nate wiley he played every thursday down at bob and barbara's for like 26 years 28 years and then he died but he died like the next day <laughs> like he died within 24 hours of his final gig you know people loved nate wiley you know nate n-a-t-e like nathan nate yeah, yeah n-a-t-e nate wiley w-i-l-e-y nate wiley he might have been there for 30s. I thought it was like 26 years. It might have been more. But he was there every Thursday at Bob and Barber's. And he had like the hipsters there like, towards the end. He died like 10 years ago. And to uh, look him up. So, yeah. Speaking uh, of which, there's I, stories about I was looking at some of your old video on, on YouTube because I thought, I'm going to talk to Ken Queter. I got to see. I, I left for California the year that you sort of emerged onto the scene. I, I went out in 77. And so while I was going through all that, 
you were like on your rise in Philadelphia to to like uh, being becoming iconic here. Yeah, it was so, pretty so wild. I missed all that. Yeah, it was pretty wild. But was, I was uh, listening to a video. It was you and the Secret Kids. It was 1978, and uh, yeah. it was a, a, the woman, I guess, from NBC was interviewing people in the crowd, and they're saying, "One girl says he's fabulous. He's the Messiah of rock and roll." Oh yeah, the Messiah. Everybody that was going on for about a year. That, yeah, um, I was probably behind that. I mean, it was kind of a like a wrestling joke you know uh but i you know i was really into being as good as i could be and oh you had the, the look. i mean you know you had the persona you definitely were projecting that yeah um it was like fun and games circus act i mean the whole thing was a big circus act and you know with some talent you know and uh i i did that for uh i mean up until now it's still a bit of a circus act you know but back then it was a huge circus act you know so um, the Messiah thing was part of the, the circus act, you know, yeah. and people went for it. I used to bring Hollywood around and bless people. I used to throw out Valiums. I would throw out um, um, quaaludes? antibiotics. Huh? Quaaludes? Not quaaludes. They were too precious. Valium was <laughs> that was That was my poison of choice. I loved it. The, 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 original, uh, the original quaaludes were the best. Remember those? Yeah, after that, they called them Mexican quaaludes, and nobody wanted any part of them. They put you right to sleep, those fuckers, you know? Yeah, yeah, the, the real deal would have you just going, I love you, and you'd just be hugging total strangers. and that was... Exactly. It was incredible. I don't know why they got rid of those fucking things. You know, it's like, I mean, like, they, they, they got rid of them, you know, because the Mexican ones sucked. Well, I was in the hospital right around the time that the original ones were going out. And I asked the nurse, because I was going in for a knee operation, and I asked the nurse if I could get quaaludes. And she goes, we don't give those out anymore. And I asked her why not. And she told me that the patients would be walking the halls in their sleep. <laughs> they, wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't put the people to sleep. They just had them just feeling too good. It was unbelievable. They were, un I mean, I just, I just can't believe there's not like a market on the stuff. Someone's not, some college kid isn't making those things you know i don't know it's unbelievable but i can't do them now but i'm saying neither can i i did my last say. drug like when i was in my tw late 20s yeah when i hit I 30 it just like my body just said no more how yeah yeah i wish i could say that maybe 20 days ago <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm out and about all the time. I'm not into them, but, you know, on occasion. But, uh, but you know, um, there's enough shit going on in the bars with the drinking, you know, that thing. You know, so that's enough, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nowadays. So, so now, when, uh, I'm getting back to that video, it looked like you were, like, very pissed off if anybody compared you to, like, punk rock. Did you, oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Did you really, really hate punk rock that much? Uh, I despised it. And to this day, if, if I have a chip on my shoulder, it's about all those punk rock motherfuckers back in Philadelphia who gave me a hard time. I mean, I was not a punk rocker, but I was a tough motherfucker, you know. And, you know, if they came across me, or came across me and my friends, we would 
that, you know, deal a little bit of justice. You know, throw some guys through some fucking doors and throw them down steps. Because uh, they're wise guys, you know, and they deserve being thrown down steps. And to this day, I'd still throw, if I ran into some of those motherfuckers who fucked with me, I'd throw them down steps today. I'm still pissed off that I was lumped in with a bunch of fucking assholes who couldn't tune their guitar, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I guess this. Because, I guess I'll the punk you, scene was different happened. in Philly than it was on the West Coast because we had groups like the Weirdos, the Circle Jerks, uh, Fear, who well, was fronted by Lee Ving, and uh, but those guys I mean, were. I wasn't. I wasn't so mad at the, the 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 national bands or, you know, I was mad at the audience that thought they were punk rockers, right? And they looked down on me, man. And you know, they should have never done that. Because, you know, I kept their number for years, you know, and I went through, I'm going to tell you right now, I went through like almost two decades of these motherfuckers, like way after that interview, when that interview was aired back, you know, when it was aired, the next day, I would, people really liked me up until that interview, the next day, entire city turned against me. It was like, it was politically incorrect to like Ken Queter, because I didn't like Right. Punk rock. Well, that's because yeah. punk rock was wasn't so much about the the music itself, but it was like a movement. And these were very less just angry, isolated kids who, uh, uh, you know, they they weren't your typical rock aficionados. They they weren't there for the rock and roll. They were there for the violence and the and the. Well, some of I mean I don't have a violent. It was a bit of a a, 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 a just just. A disingenuous intellectual sleight of hand going on. That, that's what was going on. They were a little bit more well educated than I was because most of them came from the suburbs and went to good schools. I didn't. And they were pretty articulate, but they weaponized language against me. And I, I, I couldn't really fight them back. But I was a much better musician. And, you know, they fucked with me for, for years. And when, when a couple of punk rockers died, like in the um, early 90s, that, you know, I was, I knew these guys. I went and I played benefits for these two different punk rockers. And you want to, I swear to God, there were people in the audience pointing their thumbs down at me. 20 years after that interview, you know, I was ready to fucking slash those motherfuckers. I mean, I'm doing a fucking benefit for a punk rocker who died. And you have the nerve to put your thumb down? I mean, those motherfuckers, I've, you know, I still am pissed, you know. Yeah. Because they... They, I mean, you'd think they would have grown up, you know, but they all have corporate jobs and they're just not nice people, you know, I mean, I was a nice guy. I mean, it was just, they, they made a lot of things difficult for me for a good 15 years. I mean, I continued, like I say, musical salmon, getting through it, but I don't really talk about that too much. But if there's one thing that I have a chip on my shoulder, it, it's that a group of um, disingenuous, you know, intellectual sleight of hand nonsense. Uh, a lot of them were charlatans, um, and to this day, you know, I'm one of those guys. Sometimes they they still think they're hipper than now, and you know, it's like, but I'm the only guy still playing music. So I think in the end, I'm the guy who's still playing. You know, right? I guess that yeah. th that whole punk scene was like their last hurrah before they went into their um, lives as plumbers. And uh... I don't think it was plumbers. I think it was more like corporate work. The, the oh, people really? that were plumbers. The people that were plumbers and, and carpenters weren't part of the punk rock thing. They they were the people in the rock. Well, they were rock the rockers. Wall. Okay, so was, yeah. okay, the, so the, the Wall Street guys were, were the punkers. Well, I don't want to say the Wall Street. I'm saying guys, 
who ended up working, you know, uh, accountants for CVS or Rite Aid or, you know, Pepsi Cola or, you know, maybe some Wall Street stuff. But the ones in Philly, I mean, they all ended up, not all of them, but quite a few of them ended up in uh, cushy jobs where they're, you know, and I mean, like, but at the same time, they made my life miserable for years. And they were coming off like they were the authentic representatives of art in Philadelphia, whereas I was the guy who was, took a vow of poverty and continued on. You know, they, they, you know, it's the same thing with the clowns that went to Woodstock. The whole Woodstock thing was a, a complete fraud. I mean, you know, I'm not, like, in other words, I probably sound like some angry guy, but I'm like, I was sober back then. The whole Woodstock thing was one, I mean, the Woodstock thing was wonderful that the, the music took place, but the, the, the hey, what's it called? Hey, geography? You know what that yeah. is? H-A-G-I-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. That was like, you know, cast upon that Woodstock generation from the media as if all these kids were saints and wonderful. I mean, it was a great time, but it was like um, there was a little bit of this peace movement going on, but it wasn't what the media made it out to be. I mean, I mean, as soon as, the, 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 as, soon as things got tough, they all quit. And they all got corporate jobs. Yeah, I mean, hippies they, they were ranting and raving. Yeah, I mean, look at Jerry Rubin and or the other clown, um, um, Abby Hoffman. Yeah, uh, Jerry Rubin. Within eight years of Woodstock, was already working at Wall Street, and uh, Abby Hoffman became a degenerate gambler who ran out on bills all the time. I mean, no one ever talks about that stuff, you know. Um, so, I mean, I have a, a thing about. Um, you know, I've been around too long to be, you know, p- persuaded that this group is good and that group's great. I mean, I mean, the punk rock thing, I understand what people, I mean, I mean, people thought Tom Waits was punk rock, but he wasn't punk rock. I mean, he was, you know, he was deeply. No, I would never, I would never compare Tom Waits to a punk rocker. He he was. In uh, the early, I mean, in the very early days, the earliest, the very, very early days that you heard it. But, but he, within a year, he was already proven he wasn't that. But for whatever reason, people thought I was, and I did say I wasn't. Then the entire city of Philadelphia came down on my case. I got to tell you, man, walking the streets of Philly after that interview for years was a pain in the neck. You know, it was like, uh, you know, it was like a real jag. Were you you playing mostly uh, original stuff back then or covers or a combination of both? I did all originals from 1974 till 19... 90, 20 straight years of original music with no cover, Bob, maybe an occasional cover, you know. And then after that, I was so broke, I started to learn other people's tunes. But I mean, you know, there's a difference between being 26 and broke and 44 or 46 and broke. When you're 26 and broke, you could crash on anybody's couch that you want. When you're 46, everybody used to crash when the cats are all married and they're not, you know, the wife ain't having you over. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, so, exactly. But, but you I did become a beast of burden. Yeah, but I did twenty straight years of living in poverty. I lived in flop houses. I did all that shit to do my music. So nobody ever, you know, it's like I don't talk about that much, but that's what I did. You know. Yeah, um, I I kind of went that route too. I I bought into the when the Beatles came out with "All You Need Is Love." I bought into all that. You know, money can't buy a love, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I've been. I did too. Yeah. Barely surviving and, uh, ever since. I'm yeah, used I mean, to I, it. I, yeah. Tell me about the Secret Kids. As uh, that was, uh, how long were, were they together? 
1975. Let's see. It was I was I was I used to drive. I was Tom Waits' chauffeur. Okay. So and then I, and he you, and I. Wait, you were Tom Waits' driver? Yeah, when he first started off, when he was like 20, 24. I was twenty-two. He was twenty-four. So he had already had an album out with diamonds on the windshield, and he. I was working for the government at that time. Where? And I had. Who was the governor okay. at the time? Hmm. It was 1970. Whoever it was. Was it Ronald Reagan? I, no, I'm talking about the governor. Of, uh, I worked for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. I, was, I, well, wasn't, I, I wasn't sure. Because yeah. if you say Tom Waits, yeah. I thought you might have been out west at the time. No. no what happened is um, I had a friend named Al Fischera. He was a booking agent at a bunch of colleges. And he, he was best friends with Bill Ive, who booked all the co- He booked all the colleges in the northeastern sector of America. And Al introduced me to Bill one day and Bill asked me if I had a car. And I said, yeah, yeah, I had a, had a government job, worked for welfare, set enough money, I bought a cool car. And, um, I wasn't yet in, involved in music, except I was writing songs. So I had some money and he goes, look, there's this guy coming into town, Tom Waits. Have you ever heard of him? I go, I think I heard him on the radio. He did some song about a windshield. He goes, he's coming in huh. next week. Can you pick him up? So I ended up picking him up, and then every and Bill kept booking him, Delaware, uh, New Jersey, New York City. I always got the phone call, and me and this guy Artie would go get him. Artie went for the ride, and then we um, we would drive him to his gigs, you know. And then um, after, well, I think we did about eleven gigs with him within one year period, you know, or thirteen months, and. Um, uh, you know, midway through that, I started to take a little bit of poetic license with the liquor that was being provided backstage. So, uh-huh. um, uh, so I would leave the club fairly screwed up, and then Artie, my buddy, he would drive Waits and me back to the hotel. You know, I'd be in shotgun seat, Waits would be in the back. But then, towards the very end. I got really fucked up a couple of times and Artie said, let's play a joke on Kenny. And then Tom waits. He ends up driving me. Right. Whoa. Driving me around. Right. So, but that happened a couple of times. And then, you know, Artie thought it was funny, but it, it waits didn't think it was funny. And then he fired me for drinking. You know, so that's a story right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you were supposed to be driving Tom Waits, and he ended up becoming your chauffeur quite by accident. And uh, at the very yeah, we did eleven shows. That didn't work couple. out for Tom. What, yeah, I mean, like, it, we, we, you know, in the beginning it was great, but then you know when you're backstage, I mean, we, you know, um, you know, things happen. You know. Oh so yeah, and back was, in those days, it wasn't uncommon. Like you weren't really. In the in the grand scheme of things, you weren't doing anything that everybody else wasn't doing, and w- wouldn't have fall fallen prey to. It was like yeah, it was actually pre Belushi, <laughs> so yeah, it was like leading up to Belushi, yeah. So every Jimmy, you know what I mean? So yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't say Tom hated him. He just goes, "I have no use for you. <laughs> You're fired." You know that shit. Which you know, I respect the guy. I mean, that's cool. But there's a million crazy fucking stories like that, you know, and. Uh, this one after another, but uh, but Artie Tripp, getting back to that story, Artie was with me. He ended up becoming 
it was only for a secret kid. And we put together the band, and it was 1975 into 76. Then he and I had a problem, and then I, the band changed a couple members. And then by 1977, we changed again. Then I had like the super band. If you can imagine Jim Morrison in Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah. I mean, if you imagine, that was the secret kids. I was Jim Morrison, and I had like Led Zeppelin. Well, one kid said uh, that uh, the music of Bob Dylan with the energy of Mick Jagger, that's how he described you. Yeah, sure. Because back then, you know, I didn't play guitar. I ran around on stage all the time. I was jumping off balconies and all that shit. I did that for, you know, 10 straight years. And then I started playing guitar on stage with the band. Because the guys I, I hired were so fucking good. My guitar was redundant, even though I wrote the songs, you know. Right. But it was like... It was more like Jim Morrison, Mick Jagger, you know, Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Phil Oaks, all wrapped up. Captain Beefheart, Frank Zappa, all wrapped up in one. Now, uh, there's also a video where you did a whole show with Elvis, and you actually yeah. did a great job. Yeah, it was someone dared me to do it, and then I put together a band just for that one show, and we rehearsed the stuff. I wasn't, I'm not even an Elvis guy. But uh, it was a challenge. Yeah, I just kind of got possessed that night, and I still had the jumpsuit, you know. I had that jumpsuit <laughs> Where did you get the jumpsuit? That, like, a I had it created for me. I, I spent a 1000 on that jumpsuit. Whoa. I had that created. It took like six weeks to build, and this guy made it for me. So I still have it. You know, it's a Man, when you take ago. a dare, you'd like take it like all the way. I, I, would, yeah, I, I don't mean, think I'd spend that much money on a dare. I, I've lost more money. You know, I mean, I remember going up to New York, and spending, I mean, I was telling my girlfriend earlier today, I mean, trying to get a record deal cost money. I lost about $5,000 in one night because I had to um, pay for all the drinks and food I provided at one of my uh, record uh, showcases. You, there was no other way to get people from, you know, CBS or whatever to come see you unless you paid for them and their girlfriends and their wives to drink and eat for free. And, you know, supply drugs and shit, you know? I mean, I did that, you know, one time. I mean, that was the most I lost. I lost five grand one night. But, but you know, if that's I don't have a family. I don't have any kids. And, you know, my drug habit was never that bad. So rather than put it up my nose, why not put it towards my career, you know? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, that's my opinion. You know? So you, did, you, you recently did a... Uh, Showcase in New York for a, few, a label or a few labels? No, that was that was back in like 1979 or 80 or something like that. But I'm, I'm saying like over the over the years, I've always, I mean, the Elvis thing was only, you know, like that was a thousand bucks. That's a thousand bucks. But but there, there was more than, you know, I lost five thousand for the one showcase. Then I lost a couple thousand for another showcase. And then, you know, then I lost an entire building of equipment once because the landlord didn't pay the fucking mortgage. I mean, there's been one thing after that. But like I say, I'm musical salmon. I'm not going to fucking stop because of something finite money or equipment. It's right. not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have a high opinion. You know, I think Ken Queter deserves to continue on and, you know, whatever. And, we got you know, a thousand think, calendars to prove it. <laughs> I've had 25 different calendars over the years so and uh, <laughs> there's been at least a thousand of those of each one so i mean there's always some kind of gimmick pez, i got pez can include pez 
Ken Cooter's postage stamps. You can get, you can get pet dispensers made it yourself? I did that two years ago. I'm not down. I only have one left now. I lost a lot of money on those fuckers, you know, because I ended up giving most of them away. I, didn't, I hate charging people for shit, you know? Yeah. So, I hate, but, you know, even the Ken Cooter there's no, fun. you know, you could open like a store on your website and and sell. No, I can't. Sell it's, merch. it's too logical. No, because I can't do it. I just, I would have to take so many drugs to do that. I mean, I got to either give this shit away, or have someone sell it for me. Like, but at this point, I'm down to like, I'm, I'm giving almost. I don't want any ten quitter shit around me. Like all the t-shirts are gone. All, you know, most of the count. I have several. I have 25 years of counters. There's like 20 of each, most of them, but I don't like keep stuff. I give it away. About to take a loss. Maybe, maybe you should like uh, appoint somebody to be your merch guy and have it all shipped to their house. The so last you don't person, have to see it. The last person ripped me off for, you know, 1200 bucks. So I don't care. Like I'm not, we're still friends. Because, you know, when I'm mad at, but just, I wish you were going to give it away anyhow. Right. Yeah. I mean, let me sell them. She kept all the money. <laughs> so, <laughs> Damn. So that was a good deal. But we're good friends. I mean, she does my email list and stuff. So now, I got to ask you a question. Um, on the song Remember Me, it looked like you're playing a Guild D35. Was that, in fact, a Guild D35? Do you know? What did you do? In what concert? It's a Guild. You, I don't know. You were playing the song Remember Me. The video was uploaded in 2006, but I don't know what I, I, I look like. Okay. You were with the men from Wawa. Yeah, that would be a guild. That's a guild. I don't. I think it's a. I, I, let me tell you something about me. I don't know anything about guitars. It's going to sound ridiculous, but it's it, probably a D35. I, or, I, or I honestly don't even know what it is. But I've had, Chris Christopherson signed it. I'll tell you that. Uh. Uh, but I know nothing. I have a Martin. I know nothing about it. Now, the I only reason Taylor, I'm asking is because. It looked like my very first guitar, which was a Guild D35. And um, yeah. when I was like a singing waiter, the Moody Blues came in, and one of the guys was playing it, and Johnny Cash had played it. It fell apart eventually. I never got it autographed by anybody, but it, yeah. it, great memories came with that Guild D35. So that's why I love, when I look, saw you holding one, I had yeah, to ask I, I That's my favorite guitar of all. I just had to ask this one because... Uh, someone just handed me. I have the Taylor now, which I have no idea what it is. But uh, it was someone gave it to me, so I was like, "I'll use this for a while. I'll get back to the Guild." I've used the Guild on ninety percent of my every gig of my life. I mean, but it's either a twenty-five or a thirty-five. All I know is it sounds great. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's a, they are great guitars. They play nice, them. unplugged, great necks. Yeah, man. But you talk. I I'm like the stupidest guy when it comes to amplifiers. Or guitars. I know a little bit about microphones, and that's about it. That's all I know. That's, well, actually, I mean, that's that's refreshing just, because I know in all all my relationships, anytime, like me and my buddy DJ were with our girlfriends, and we started talking about guitars or gear or anything, you know, that that's just eventually lead to a breakup because like it, they don't want to be around that. I'm just afraid if I got too involved with that, it would. I'm more into the being a performer, you know, singer. If I get into the, the guitar thing, I know guys that are pretty good songwriters, and they just get so persnickety about their strings they use. And I'm like, and if they have a bad show, they blame it on the strings. I'm like, 
Dude, nobody in the audience knows what strings you're using. It's all about the performance. It's, it's you got to lock in to the zone and get on that stage, you know? Yeah. That's, that's my opinion, you know? I agree with you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's just uh, talk about that for a second. I've always been, because this is one of the things I always get in arguments with my best friend about. He's like, he likes the pedals, the, the, you know, the phaser and the chorus and the loop stations. And like, I just like to take an acoustic guitar and just bang it out raw. I've only recently yeah. started using a loop station on some songs, but I like, yeah. like the way you do it. You just play the song and sing the song. Because it's about the present tense. Look, I understand guitar players are some great ones and they could do all the tricks with the pedals. I'm just a primitive, like Hank Williams kind of guy. And if I get a pedal, the only thing that's going to be on there will be sound effects of like police sirens and explosions and shit. And, you know, I'm not going to put my guitar through there. You know, it's like, uh, but I'm like you. I'm like, just keep it basic and you got to get in the zone, go out there. I mean, it was if it was good enough for a couple thousand years from the Greek theaters and Roman theater, and it was it did well in Shakespearean theater. I'm just you know I think I can pull it off without a pedal. Yeah, <laughs> I mean if you're strong enough on stage and you believe in yourself enough, you can do it. You know. Yeah. And, I, and no I, drum I'm machines either. I mean I don't have that stuff, but I I want the people who bring that stuff to gigs, and then you know we'll use it because. Like he, the guy that I'm playing with, he'll sing a song with that stuff going, and that's I'll just follow him. But when I do my stuff, it's pretty much straight up, you know what it is. You now know? I gotta, but I, I gotta work. say, um, I don't, I, I, I should clarify that there are guys that use it so effectively, and yeah. sometimes I'm a little jealous, like wow, I wish I could do that. But in in the end, you know, it's just my preference is bare bones but when i see somebody who knows how to use a looper and knows when to use their their uh, their harmonizer or whatever i i respect that i just some guys out there just completely abuse the shit yeah when they abuse it, it's ridiculous but i i work with a guy every tuesday night at smoky joe's we do a thing for the college kids so you know i do half the show and he does, uh, we do every other song so he'll do um you know, Justin Timberlake or Justin Bieber or Earth, Wind & Fire, and it'll hit the programs. And it's like, it sounds like a 24-piece band. All I do is I just play the chords along with that. And then, you know, he's like, and he does it real tastefully. It's not like overdone. You know what I'm saying? So I, 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 I'm in, I agree with you. I'm in the same camp you're in, you know? And uh, so, but I'm not going to, I might foul up my own karma if I, overdo it but <laughs> when i work with a guy who knows how to do it tastefully then i'm i'm like really um you know I, I i i respect that person but then again you see guys who who just it's ridiculous you know it they over it, it, it gets between them and the audience you know what i mean yeah it becomes like a, a separation but but yeah i agree with you totally absolutely you know so now this the, 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 this latest iteration that you're involved with now, it's the men from Wawa. Is that what you're calling yourselves now when you play with the guys yeah. at Fogarty? And... and Greg Davis and Michael Vogelman and Mark Manley. And there's a couple of variations. There's a couple other guys that come and go, but Fogarty's always in it, you know. 
and uh, Alan James sometimes is in it, but, uh, but pretty much the same guys. Fogarty's, you know, he's like the musical director in a way. Yeah. Know, at this point. I think Jim, Jim Fogarty is as big talent wise as he is in, in real life. Yeah. He's, he's a monster. How long know? have you known him? I met him in 1994. I can't believe it. it's like 25 years ago. Seems like just yesterday. And he was, um, he just started playing guitar and he was already great. And then he just got better and better. He's one of the few guys that always improves, you know, and yeah. sounds better. And a sweet voice he's, too. His, his... Yeah, he's amazing. You know, he works a lot. He works a lot of gigs. Um, but right now I'm kind of, Right now, I'm entering a crazy season with a lot of University of Penn private parties and fraternities and sororities, and then, um, alumni, and then reunions. I do a lot of stuff for Penn with these gigs, you know. And then I got the stuff, and I got a lot of stuff in Manion and Roxborough. Did you take? Uh, you went to to college uh, for the music, for arts, or? I don't know. Once again, I know nothing about. Music. I mean, I don't know how to read music or write music. Everything is kind of primitive, you know. Yeah, I'm the same um, way. I took lessons formally for about six months. I couldn't. My brain, you know, my ear took over, so it kept me from really being able to sight, learn a sight read. But I, you, you mentioned working with the university, so I was wondering. I thought you maybe you went to school there too. No. No, not at all. I went to Temple. I never graduated, but uh, the I I started. I took one. I think I took one or two classes in music. I just couldn't get it, man. So I ended up taking English and communications. But, you know, but I just kind of wrote songs, you know, like Hank Williams, you know, a couple chords and lyrics and shit like that, you know. And, uh, you know, so. You just, but, you just put what was in your heart to music and that's what you get. Yeah, like Phil, yeah, like Phil Oaks or Pete Seeger. Or, they, they were. They were like my heroes growing up. I don't think those guys read music. And, you know, none of my songs are that complicated. You know, it's just chords that repeat themselves, you know, and uh, kind of, you know, kind of simple. I think anything different about me is like this theatrical approach on stage, like some kind of an aura or something, you know, and some people see it, some people don't. I mean, there's like a connection. I try to make a connection with the audience and, um, and I try to be funny. No sh two shows are the same. There's no set list. There never was, you know, it's just random, you know, picking people want to hear a song. I just do it. You know, or I'll, if I just learned a couple of Irish tunes, I'll do those or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's no set list, you know? I mean, when I play tomorrow night, I mean, we might be doing like the guy playing next to me, he might want to do a Beyonce song, which I've never done. You know, we'll do Beyonce or, you know, we'll do something else, you know, Blink-182, you know, or whatever. And I'll do whatever I do, but it depends. It depends on what people yell out. I mean, you can't really play the Beatles anymore to anybody under 25 colleges. So that, that, that's one of my favorite bands. Can't really play the Stones. Does they, anybody they, still they, yell out Freebird anymore at your concerts? They love Freebird. We, you know, we do Freebird. Uh, I was just going to yeah. say that. Like one, so many musicians joke about that. Like, 
uh, I charge twenty dollars to do Freebird. I'm like, dude, if somebody asks for Freebird, you just play Freebird. I have no yeah, qualms yeah, about playing Freebird yeah. or Margaritaville or Brown Eyed Girl, like all the songs musicians profess to hate. Well, that's that's how we make our money. Well, you know, like the, I don't know who those guys are, but I've, I know exactly what type that is. Like I look at it this way: you, me, we are witch doctors. Somebody wants to hear Brown Eyed Girl to feel better. I'm going to witch doctor it out. I'm going to do it. I'm going to witch doctor out, you know, Brown Eyed Girl or Wagon Wheel. And uh, it's like going to the doctor. If six people came in and they needed um, Prozac, right, and a seventh person comes in and they really need Prozac, are you not going to give them Prozac because you gave it to six people before? You're going to give them Prozac or you're going to give them antibiotics. Like They get these people that this ego thing that they're not going to lower themselves to do Brown Eyed Girl. I'm sorry, yeah, but that, it's like in that the eyes, the spoonful song where it says the doctor said a little jug band music seems to make them feel just fine. Yeah, it's true. You know, and I don't know where these people get off. And and believe me, there's a lot of them. My guitar player, he knows how to play Freebird. We don't do it that often, but when we do it, 21 year old kids are like going berserk, and I'm like, it's unbelievable. The song, they're they're not doing it. Like they must love it, I guess. I, all I know is that when we get done, everybody's laughing and cheering. I mean, that's my fucking job to move people from their daily boredom and daily horror. You know, that's the job. You know, and if you don't, if you don't do the job that you have a calling for, what are you going to do? <laughs> what else am I going to do? Make ice cubes? I mean, you know. You are the guitar playing bluebird of happiness, and you got to bring it. <laughs> I like that. Write that down. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. But but yeah, man, it's our job. I mean, I don't, I don't like this song. Like I wrote a song that I play all the time, and not my favorite song. But people go, don't you get sick of singing this song? I go, no, because people want to hear it. I'm I'm one of lucky people that somebody actually wants to hear one of my songs. <laughs> like, if I want to get mad at a song I wrote, <laughs> I mean, I mean, what luxurious island do you live on that you can actually like hate yourself? I mean, it's insane, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm like. I'm lucky I'm making a living doing this shit, you know? Well, I live for the day, the, mo- the times when people request a song I wrote. It's been a while because yeah. the people back here in uh, Philly aren't really familiar with my originals. So I was playing them a lot more back in the day in Los Angeles. Yeah. Right. You know, so you know what I'm talking about. But yeah. Well, yeah you you want them to request your own music. It's like, really? You want me to play that? Yeah. 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 You know, and... Um, I mean, that's the best feeling in the world. So, um, I don't, and the other thing is like, you know, like I happen to like buy my Miss American Pie. People like make fun of that song. I go, but the, the people who make fun of it are over 55 years old. The t- kids are 21, 25, 19. To them, that is a great song because they didn't, apparently, because it was played so much on the radio when I was young, I'm supposed to hate the song. I'm exactly. sorry. If the played, song wasn't know, such a great song to begin with, it wouldn't have been overplayed to begin with. Yeah. Remember uh, that. That th- yeah. That's the reason they played it so much. They played it to death because yeah. the song's so great, Stairway to Heaven. And yeah. All, all, and we could name it half a dozen or more. Quite a few of them. You know, Wagon Wheel and whatever the fuck. To listen to it. I happen to like most of the songs I play generally. Ring of like Fire, like, all, a lot of uh, False Imprisonment. Prison. I love that. Yeah, I love that stuff. You know, so, I mean, I mean, I mean, if I do Irish music, it's not my favorite. Some of it's good, but sometimes I got to do stuff that's 
I kind of look at it like it's good practice for the brain to learn those kind of things. The lyrics are always excellent, generally. You know, some of the melodies are funny, but, but you know, I don't know. It's what we do. Yeah, we do. and then there's story songs. Sometimes the the way Irish songs are worded, some how it takes a an American mind a little bit to to get past that. Yeah. For me, it's I, I hard for me the, to learn some of the Irish stuff, the hardcore, uh, you know, with Gaelic and. Yeah, I can't do that. But I'm saying, like, you know, uh, it, when they put words together like pipes and tobacco, uh, you know, tea and brandy punch, I mean, they, they, they're high kinetic words. There's a beauty to the poetry in a lot of that, uh, in a lot of the, the Irish stuff. And I try to lock into that. While I'm learning it, if I can, you know, like, you know, it's just, just a lot of phonetic. Uh, so are, when you do the Irish stuff, you do that with a band, like an accordion or. or... No, no, I just do it solo. Cause you know, generally when I do it, maybe me and Fogarty will do it, but I have done it with a band, but, uh, but you know, it's wonderful, but you can make just the same amount of a mark on the evening by yourself if you're oh yeah I, absolutely i think i think like one guy on a guitar or maybe a duo is perfect for irish stuff and speaking you know, of which the, uh st patty stays coming up pretty soon we're, we're almost into march yeah i'm doing two gigs that day i'm in a, doing a country club in the morning and then i'll be in Roxbury that night you know that, that afternoon you know do you yeah. have a um your schedule up on your website like if people want to know where to come find queeter these days to, Nah, it, it, it's always generally put on, uh, what do you call it, the uh, Facebook, Facebook page? Because um, websites are kind of a thing of the past. Uh, I have a website, and it's great, but people, you know, they don't search my website out as much as they will check my Facebook page. As like a lot of people follow on the page. So, I, and plus, I'm not really good. I, I normally would have to go out of my way to constantly be emailing the web person, you know, and it got to be a little prosaic or something. So I just put stuff up every day or every other day on Facebook and then people can see where I'm playing and I'll do it on Instagram. If I'm out of town, I do it on Instagram usually, you know? Okay. I still haven't figured out how to use Instagram. I, I still use Facebook primarily and sometimes Twitter. Yeah. You know, they're all, redundant i mean to me i do instagram because i got a gig coming up friday in new york for university of penn alumni and mm -hmm. they are all under 30 and they most of them don't do facebook they just do instagram so i just i'll just take a picture i'll just write out the, the information i'll take a picture of it i'll post it and then like 50 people will come to that gig when i when i Put the show up on online. I want to make sure, I, like on on the ship, I have a page with the show notes for each episode. So I want to make sure I have links to like wherever you want me to send people. Right. Okay. Yeah. And um, before before I go, I, I just wanted to uh, touch on a little bit on uh, we were talking earlier about this opportunity you have in um, was it Ecuador? Yeah. In November. Yeah, it might be. Like a month or two. It's not, nothing's nailed down yet, but it's at least a month, you know. So maybe two months is that. There'd be plenty, you know. So how, and, how did that come about? 
I met a guy named Dennis. He's a professional tennis player, and now he's teaching tennis. But he's pretty much involved in sustainability, you know, the concept of sustainability, uh, planetary sustainability. Right. And he works in conjunction. I, I could get you more. I could text you the information when I get it. But they're, they're having a big thing down in Ecuador, and um, they need some artists to come down to play music and also to teach, like, songwriting and shit like that. So I would be part of the sustainable movement. And also my, I would have uh, some gigs lined up in addition to teaching some songwriting, songwriting classes. Do you, like would that. you happen to know if Rick Denzine is involved in that? Let me get the How do you spell that name? Uh, Rick, R-I-C-K, Rick Denzine. Yeah. D-E-N-Z-I-E-N. And, I'll find out. What's he, what's he do, Rick? Well, he lives in Ambler. He has a recording studio, and he's got like he recently uh, made his entire house green with you know um, solar panels, and he drives an all electric car, and he promotes you know sustainability too. So I'd be surprised if you haven't or aren't about to cross paths. I'll bet you. I'll find all that out because I get, I got to shoot that guy an email tonight anyway to get the shit locked in. November's not that far away, you know? Okay, now Rick Denzine and I had spoke already, so he, I got a podcast with him coming up. Let me give you this guy, the guy's name that, that uh, my company. His name is Dennis Rowan, R-O-W-A-N. Dennis Rowan. Okay, and he's uh, he's all about sustainability, huh? Yeah, and he's he's been down there a couple times. Um, I could do a thing uh, in an area called Montanito, M-O-N-M-O-N-T-I-N-I-T-O, Montanito, Montanito. And that's where it's taking place, Montanito. Got it, Montanito. Yeah. So Ed, how do you, how do you spell it? It's Ed, Ed, Ren. Who? Your buddy. Oh, oh Your Rick. Rick Denzine. Oh, Rick. Rick Denzine. D e n z i e n, and his he's part of NSAI, which is the Nashville Songwriters Association International. So, yeah, let me get this. But How he's a cool Rick? guy. He Rick Rick Rick's he's the real deal. How do you know? Um, when I first came out here, I was like looking for places to play and looking for songwriter hangouts and. It was Christmas time, and there was a place in Doylestown. I don't, I don't even remember the name of the place, but they had sort of some kind of songwriters in the round thing. And prior to that, they, uh, I don't know, there was some dead time, and somebody asked me if I wanted to play, so I got up and played a few of my songs, and then uh, they liked me, so it just got one thing led to another, and I just started meeting all these people. So uh, there was Liz Miller who was now a really good friend of mine. And um, I guess Rick was there that night. Um, I don't know. I just sort of like fell into this NSAI event. And so I met this group of people through that. Yeah, well, I just, as I was talking, I was just texting uh, the other guys. So we'll find out what the, we could put two and two together. Great. Never know. That's that's the beauty of this whole, you know, thing. It, it turns into one big network and, 
it's it's a smaller world than you think. Well, you know, when you're on the same, like you and I are on the same frequency, and I'm sure Rick is, uh, it, it, the world definitely seems small when you're on the same frequency. But, you know, but it's still a big world, <laughs> you know. But I hope I get the chance to see it. Uh, I'm going to put the word in, if you want, for you at the um, Bridgeport, because you live near the fucking place, you know? Uh, yeah, I, I I won't turn down any uh, help I can get. And, of course, if I hear anything, I'll, I'll reciprocate. Yeah, you got like a hotel gig or something. I have a what? Well, you have a hotel gig in Wayne? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. You know what? It canceled for tomorrow night. It's, it's really slow this week. So he goes, I know this is, sh I got an email. I know this is short notice, but it's slow this week. Is that okay? You know, and I said, listen, I want to keep you happy and keep the gig for the long term. So that, that's fine. I said, I can't lie. I'm, I am disappointed, but, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, it happens to everybody. I've done, I've gone to gigs all of a sudden. There's a fucking DJ there setting up where I go. <laughs> yeah. I no, can, I don't, yeah. Know, I, I don't think it's that, though. I mean, it really it can be a very slow place. It's, it's like in the middle of nowhere. And uh, he hired me to play just the Tuesday nights. And this isn't the first time where he said it's going to be slow. Do you mind, uh, you know, if we cancel it this week? You know, I always work with the club owner. You know, I go, look, I'd rather have a long term relationship with you than be a jerk and demand money. Like, because it's better to have a long term relationship. You know? Exactly. You burn that bridge and like, for sure, they're not going to invite you back ever. But if you if you get it, and you know if you can see both sides of the equation, it uh, sometimes the manager or the owner of a venue really just can't do it that week, and you know you got to put yourself in, you got to be able to put yourself in the, in those shoes too. And I look at those guys; they're you know they're not making a whole lot of money. It's a mom and pop operation, and I want them to succeed. I don't take any pleasure out of taking money out of a register on a slow night. Uh, when I could say, just give me half the money, I'll cut my show in half, and hopefully next week we have a better week. I'd rather take half the money and come back next week than take all the money and never come back. Yeah, that's you know? uh, what, what's the expression? It's better to have a little bit of something than a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> I think that is a motto we should all memorize, you know? Absolutely. But do you ever get into like the uh, Mount area area or? You ever come out for drinks and I have. Well, yeah, that's a part of the problem. My problem is I don't drink that much anymore, so I don't find myself in bars that often unless I get hired to play one. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm in there too little often too often. <laughs> I wish I'd rather play churches, but there's no money. <laughs> yeah, which is the same reason you don't become a, a jazz musician. Yeah. Um well there's a bigger reason. I don't, I'm not that good. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have it, you know. Touche. Uh, yeah, they don't, it, unfortunately, I mean, they play tremendous. It just, there's not much money in that, man, you know. Yeah. So what's, kinda, what, kinda so crazy. what, anything uh, coming up in the next, uh, 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 smoke, you mentioned you, Smokey you know, Joe's. When is that? Is, is that like steady that's, gig? That's tomorrow night. It's every Tuesday night at midnight. We go on at midnight. You go on at Every midnight? Tuesday. We go from midnight to after two, yes. Holy shit. Was like an after-hours club? No, it's a bar. It's just the kids, the college kids. No college kids would come ever come out of their house. They never come out till like till at least 11.45. No, that's pretty cool. Yeah, because they're, they're, they're studying or they're pre-gaming, and then they come out, 
and they party till two and, and then we finish around two fifteen. We hang around, get home at four AM, you know. And then I'm working I work every Tuesday there at midnight. Every Thursday I'm in Maniunk at Winnie's restaurant at uh, five PM every Thursday. That's a relatively recent vertical booking. Uh I used to have Thursdays in West Philly, but that fell apart. And this just popped up a few months ago. So I got Tuesday nights at Smokies every Thursday um, at 5 p.m. at Winnie's Restaurant in Maniunk. The tricky part is always following up, trying to get gigs, you know. It's pretty time-consuming. Yeah, I've gotten bad you at know? it. Well, especially since I started doing this podcast. It's like it's I'm, I'm consumed by this now. How tricky is it to put together a podcast? What do you set up like a machine? It's not really you difficult, know. but you know, it's uh, it is a lot of work because you got to do after you talk to somebody for an hour, then you got to listen to it several times, just like recording a song and edit out all the parts you don't want and try to normalize and and compress the vocals on it so it, you don't you know especially like I'm talking to you on the phone, so I got to try to pump your vocal up and bring mine down and then equal, you know get them equalized in the mix and add some background music to it and decide what what to, what to leave right. in what to leave out you know. so i'll i'll Absolutely. figure it out i'm still in the beginning stages of this you, you know you're, you're helping me launch this thing get it off the ground so yeah for that Absolutely. i am grateful thank you and if you need any more you know if you want some follow-up stuff and i can come up with some wild stories which all actually happened i'll, I'll you know maybe throw more spice in there you know <laughs> anytime if you want to do a part two we could do that just say the yeah, word because I'm, I'm all about that anyway well, i suppose i've got a chance to talk man so i'm going to get, get, start get some things done here and then um uh, but let's definitely keep in touch definitely will and I'll, I'll drop in on you some of your gigs you know anytime i'm nearby or on my way home and if i'm passing somewhere where i know you're going to be playing i'll just pop in on you like i did the other night at bridgeport cool man Cool. Have a great night now. Well, there you go. Ken Queter, the one and only. And I just want to remind you, Ken's playing at the Bridgeport Rib House. It's a Sunday brunch, March 31st, this coming Sunday. So if you are listening to this podcast the, the day it drops, which is Thursday, um, what's today? Uh, Thursday, March 28th. So it's, in, it's just in a few days. Sunday the 31st, brunch, 12 p.m. Go catch Kenny. What kind of job can you drink on a job when you're drinking on a job on a job? Hey, what kind of job can you drink on a job when you're drinking on a job on a job? Hey, what kind of job can you drink on a job when you're drinking on a job on a job? Hey, what kind of job can you drink on a job when you're drinking on a job on a job? Fuck you, good night!